Welcome to This Story Matters. Each episode, we visit with people just like you who've walked through events that have grown their faith, transformed their families, drawn them closer to Christ, and refreshed their outlook on life. We believe sharing a testimony can build up others, and that is why this story matters. This episode is presented by Beatles Property Maintenance. For all home maintenance needs, including mold remediation and radon mitigation, more information found at BeatlesPM.com. Hi, I'm Stephanie Jenkins, your host for This Story Matters. Today we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff, but before we go any further, we just want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to be part of this conversation because really it's His story. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we just invite your Holy Spirit into this room and into this conversation. Lord, we know that you are a loving God. We know that despite how difficult and broken and the chaos that may come into our lives, that you are ultimately in control, that you can use the worst for your good and for your glory, and that you are a God that forgives. You are a God that heals. You are full of grace and you are full of mercy. And Lord, I just pray that those hearing this today would feel that more than anything, that you love them and that you forgive them and that you will help them forgive themselves. Lord, we love you. We give you all the glory and praise. Amen. We're going to talk about some hard stuff today. So if you have um, kids around, this may be an episode that you want to listen to with your headphones in or somewhere private. If you're not ready to explain some of these things, we just want to let you know that ahead of time. But um, this is a topic that you and I have wanted to be able to share and talk to people about for a few years now, and we're thankful for this. So let's start kind of at the beginning of this story. Um, Where were you in life and what was happening? Yeah, so I had bounced, um, was coming out of a season where I had bounced between my parents they were divorced, and um, my dad actually left my mom to live in a homosexual lifestyle, which is just not your everyday, typical uh, adolescence growing up. So I had a pretty different view of sexuality and what was accepted and normed, and was living in Southern California at the time, and I think just life had me beaten and broken. Um, I had actually kind of given my life to the Lord. Uh Earlier in my teenage years, tried that whole religious thing, and it just didn't stick, didn't work for me. And so was just out having, you know, fun, living the high school life, and um, found myself uh, what I thought was a relationship with a guy that was nine years older than me. At oh, 16. wow. Yeah. And so, but, you know, at that time, you think, oh, it's normal. Right. Right. And um, I was raised under the guise, if it feels good, do it. There was just no limitations. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting pregnant. And my mom was kind of funny. She just kind of hit the fan a little bit, which a good mom would. Right. right? Yeah. Um, And she's like, you need a break. So why don't you go spend some time? It was around Thanksgiving time. Why don't you go spend the holidays with your grandparents? And we'll figure school out when you get back. And Where did your like, grandparents live? Close they lived by in Kansas. In Kansas. In Wichita, Kansas. Okay, so that's a trip. Uh, it's a trip, yeah. So we got on an airplane, went out there, started around Thanksgiving time. And the moment that I got to town, my grandmother really began to work on me. 
and say, listen, you cannot do this. Like you are too young. You don't know what you're doing. You're a mess. You cannot bring a child into this. I had an aunt who really wanted me to have the baby and give it up for adoption for her friends and would kind of talk to me a little bit about that. But I was living with my grandparents at the time and had this constant droning of, like, you just can't do this. And I think at some point I just began to believe them. Here's the deal. Like, I'm a strong woman. I'm capable. I've always been way ahead of the curve, right? Um, But I just, I think I allowed myself to just be like, no, you're right. I, I can't handle this. And so I don't know, for those of you who know much about, like, the history of abortion, um, during this time, it was kind of a hotbed in Wichita, Kansas. Um, There was a doctor, Dr. Tiller, who would do uh, abortions up to the point of birth. Um, Late, horrible uh, third trimester abortions. Um, But he was one of the best abortionists. If you're going to have a field and abortion is your industry, he was one of the best in the country. And women would come literally from all over to have their abortions here. And so you would see women in the office that, you know, were young like me, but you would also see women who were, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and some were very pregnant and some were like me and not really even showing. Um, But I had waited long enough to make this decision that it was a little more complicated than what you would hear um, and what really people that are pro-abortion talk about, you know, just a quick eight week, you just go in and, you know, you just terminate pregnancy. So I was actually about 15 weeks along and it was a lot more involved. It was a two day process and it was brutal. Um, I was not prepared for not just the emotional awakening that would happen in the moment of recovery, but how my body was never really the same. And so I don't know that most people really know what goes on in an abortionist's office. So they sit you through kind of a light in a group setting. They sit you through and they tell you a little bit about this massive tissue and, you know, that it's an alien in your body and it's taking things over. And of course, you know, we never call it a baby. We never say what it really is, that it's life. It's just foreign and benign. And it's like having a tumor removed, right? You need a tumor removed to be healthy. So you go through the process, you're in the room with a bunch of other women, and they say, you know, this this really could, like, have long-term implications for your fertility. Oh, and, you know, you could die, but it's very rare. doesn't very happen. It doesn't happen very often, and this doctor is the best, right? So we're glad you're here, and you're going to be glad you're here. And so I um, knew that I did not want to be awake because it was involved. So the first day, um, they put in laminaria, which is like a seaweed stick into your, um, like up into your cervix to dilate you more naturally. They say, let me just tell you, uh, (laughs) you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and your cervix is closed for a reason. And when it opens before it's supposed to, it is anything but natural. It was painful. They don't talk about that. So I got very sick, I threw up, I bled, all at home, all on my own, in my grandparents' basement. We got up the next day, Um, I couldn't keep anything down, this was really weak. And we were walking in, and I remember there was a group of protesters, and you guys, I can still see them to this day, and they're standing along the fence, 
and they're holding signs. And this guy goes, Mom, are you going to let your daughter kill her baby? And I just stuffed it. I stuffed it so deep inside, and I just walked in. So they do an ultrasound to make sure how far along you are and make sure everything still looks good. And um, my grandma's like, well, you know, it's going to cost more for them to knock you out. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, I'll go work at McDonald's. I'm not. I cannot be awake through this. And um, so they line you up. There was 10, like, beds kind of all in a row, and they walk you in. And I'm pretty wheezy because I had already had the meds. And I get up on the table. You know, you're up in that position. The doctor's on a rolly chair, and literally the vacuum comes on, and I'm out. But there's nine more women after me because I was the very first one. So I woke up in a room uh, full of other women, um, some light crying and things like that, and I was shocked. I immediately knew what I had. As a mother, when your baby is torn from your body, it becomes your baby. You can tell me that it was a massive tissue. You can tell me that it was benign. But in that moment, I was naked before God, and I knew what I had done. In that moment, I mean, how much scripture had you read and understood up to this point? I mean, enough like John three sixteen, mm-hmm. and like I knew, like I had gone to, I was grew up in poverty and was part of a church uh, van pickup, right? Right. So I knew that like Jesus was there to cleanse my heart, and that it was black, and that if I asked Him to save me, it would be white. So I had like some understanding. But this was beyond, like it was an unveiling. When you say that, it reminds me of what I've read in Genesis. When Adam and Eve realize they are naked. Yes. Like, that's exactly how I felt. Just raw and broken. And my heart hurt worse than the cramps, right? I mean, it is brutal. We are not honest as women to each other when we talk about it and when we say, this is what happened to me. I feel like I was a product of what they were trying to accomplish. And the care, while medically probably the best care that any woman in the country could have had, was still impersonal and horrifying. And so I left, stuffed it all down, heard the protesters on the way out. We went and got some prescriptions to kind of help with the pain and things like that. And I just stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and shoved it as far down as anything in my life could have ever gone. And then the shame just welled and welled and welled. I mean, have you ever, had you ever felt shame before in your life? Because you talked about how it was just, if you feel good, if it feels good, do it. And it wasn't really life as you lived it really wasn't about the consequences as much as it was the high of whatever you were doing. So when you're feeling shame, like you're describing, did you know what it was that you were feeling? No. And, and it was such a weight 
like a weight that is, it is insurmountable, right? You wake up with it, but you're still expected to put on a happy face and just pretend like everything is fine. And so at that moment, I latched on to the most stable force in my life, which was my poor, unsuspecting husband of now 30 years. <laughs> and I just pretended like nothing had happened. And um, we had dated when, dated, I use that term loosely, when yes. I was younger. And um, I, he knew I was pregnant and I just told him I had had uh, a miscarriage. But now I was ready to, to go on with the second half of my life at 16. And at that point, at, at 16, you guys had kind of had a relationship before, but you were had just been friends at this point? Yeah, we had, he'd been like my first kind of puppy love boyfriend, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually where I kind of really got to know the Lord a little bit. Uh, he was a Christian from a Christian home who was missionary dating, which I would never recommend or encourage or even want my children to do, uh, but he was stable. He was the most stable person that I knew. And what you don't realize, I think, with shame is that it comes in waves. Like you have moments of clarity and normalcy and then moments of the deepest, darkest um, power that just it feels like you're being pulled the earth and that if you're not careful, it would swallow you whole. And I don't know how else to really talk about what that looks like. But it shaped everything moving forward for the for a long time. So are you back in California now? So no, I stayed in Wichita. Okay. Um, I, tr- like, tricked this kid into marrying me. So How old were you guys when you got married? Well, I was we were 16, and he was 18 when we got engaged, and 17 and 19 when we got married. So you and guys are babies. We were babies. Had no idea what we were doing. And he still thinks up to this point that you were pregnant, but you had a miscarriage? Yeah. And, like, he'll be honest. He'll say, I just knew that you looked like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> and Which, in all fairness, you are. I, I, I feel like yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fairly yeah. bubbly person. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, especially. This isn't like a fun story, but you are a lot of fun. I, I, yeah. I hope people view me yeah. that way. I think they do. Um, but I think he just, he liked the spark of life because inside of that stability in him, right, that deep abiding stability was a mind that would not shut off. And so he needed the balance of that kind of fun loving human. And so I'm still who I am, but marred with these marks of shame that That a lot of people can't see the most people can't see your husband couldn't see it no and so you you kind of you have that and then you have you know just the raising where lying is you know artistic storytelling yeah it's kind of so you know like you embellish and it just was really easy to kind of just not deal with it and make it about everything else and so you know the first year of marriage goes pretty good you know, you can kind of get through a lot of a lot of things. Newlywed face. Newlyweds, right? Rose-colored glasses. Year two kicks in, and we get pregnant on my second anniversary. Okay, so here we are. Uh, I'm now 19. He's uh, 20, 
he hadn't quite turned 20 or no, he's 21. So we are two years into our marriage and now we're pregnant. And, um, I remember when I told him his life flashed before his eyes. So we have our son, everything seems fine. And four months in, we go to his pediatric visit, take him, the doctor's doing all these really weird, odd things. And he comes back to me and he goes, I, I hate to tell you this, but I think your child is blind. Okay. Now put yourself in that room in that moment. Four-month-old newborn. We had just moved to Springfield. I left all of our family behind. I'm alone. My baby is born blind, and it's my fault. Right? Yeah. Because I had an abortion. I would... Of, yeah. Of no one course. has told you that. No. No one has spoken mm-hmm. that over you. That is what shame is telling you. The 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 voice of the of the accuser, of the accusation of, of course you deserve this. You killed your baby. And Did Skip, you ex- your husband still does not know. I think by then Or had I, you told him I at think some by point. then maybe I had come clean. And you know, but he didn't know what to do with me. Right. Right. Because like he'd entered into a covenant with you mm-hmm. and, and he wasn't looking to break that covenant. No, because he loved me. I, yeah. was st- I was even still fun. Even, yeah. you know, with a four month old blind kid. Right. We're coming out kind of just in awe and shock and what is going on. And. Um, it was really where like the rubber hits the road. Like this is this is big stuff. So we go through all the testing and things and. We come to find out he has very rare birth defects. This is before uh, the age of quick access internet and WebMD. Um, we we had AOL dial-up, you know, took yeah. a long time to figure anything out. Didn't talk about those things on MySpace. And they, yeah, and um, it was very rare. One of the questions they asked him was, did you serve in Desert Storm? Because it was very common for people that had been, um, that had been exposed to chemicals while they were in Desert Storm. I'm like, no, uh, he was too young for that at the time. We were in high school when that had happened. And um, and so we just kept looking for a cause. And the diagnosis comes back that it's sporadic aniridia, which means it was just a mutation of the Pax6 gene, and there's no rhyme or reason. It just happened. And um, like one in 250,000 live births this happens to. It's so rare. At the time, for most of his childhood, he was the only person in Missouri that had it. Hmm. Um, So we spent that season trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I am spiraling, spiraling out of control. But the good Christian boy bought me a Bible when we first started kind of hanging out. And so one night, I just remember sitting on this green couch that we had that we were so proud of, you know. And I opened this Bible up, and I was like, okay, God, here's the deal. If, if this is you, if, if you're going to punish me this way, this is what's going to happen. I know enough to know that you'll give me a scripture or something to get me through it. And I remember my mother-in-law would always say, if he's going to have you walk through something, honey, he's going to give you a word. He's going to give you a scripture to get you through. And so I uh, am smart enough to use an index. So I look up blindness and I come across John 9, right? So Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking together and they come across a man who had been born blind since birth. And the disciples ask Jesus, 
hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was caused to be born blind? And Jesus, I know that he smiled when he said it to them. And he said, you know, it's neither. It's so that the glory of God could be demonstrated in his life. And in that moment, I just, for a moment, felt the lift of that weight of that shame. Because it wasn't my fault. It was for his glory. And so um, Skip said, all right, here's the deal. Uh, we're not in church, and we need to be in church. I'm like, okay. So we tried a couple of churches. And were your in-laws this whole time people of strong people of faith that were praying a hundred percent. Yes. I mean, just incredible. Um, my mother-in-law is now in her late stages of Alzheimer's. Um, doesn't talk, but can still sing hymns. It's amazing. I mean, the love that she has still for Jesus is, is just captivating. Honestly. So knowing what you know now, you can imagine the prayers that were prayed over you and Skip and your lives and your future and your future children. Right. And not only that, but think about it. When things come to you that are beyond your control, right, um, the whole family started praying. I mean, his missionary uncle, you know, in India, I mean, who's got a healing ministry is praying. And um, his brother and sister-in-law are, you know, just like inviting us over and laying hands and praying. And we're just, but like, I'm still not a believer at this point, but I'm feeling his safety that I didn't know was really available. And so we started attending um, a local church here in town. And um, we happened to be there on a Sunday night when they were having like a business meeting, okay, with like not just this church, but it was like several churches all together. And, and I don't even know why we went, but we went. And there was an altar call in the middle of this church business meeting. And I'm like, I want that. But I'm like, I'm not going to do it alone because I've been there and done that. And it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Skip raised both of our hands. We walked down together. And this amazing couple, Glenna and Gary. And he didn't know what you were thinking, though, because you were thinking that to yourself, that I'm not going to do it alone. Right. So that was all God, both of those hands going on at the same time. So Gary and Glenna, we prayed. So my husband rededicated his life. I really believe that was a that was the moment when they talk about, well, how do you know that you have salvation? Because I was never the same, ever. And um, just radically different, but still felt shame. I did. And that's what I think some of the misconception is. You can come to Christ and it all is wiped. And yes, it is. But there's the act that you are saved and you are being saved. And you will be saved. Some of that is that ongoing work that has to be done. Sanctification. 100%. And so I'd taken that first step. And, um, you know, we got baptized. It was an amazing experience for me. Uh, We dedicated Trevor. Uh, Trevor still has the same condition he has. I still believe that he'll be healed. Um, And I learned so much through my son's disability about the love and the acceptance and the power of God. 
But it really wasn't until uh, the church decided to do an abortion recovery workshop that I really found fullness and healing and was never the same. And people talk about, like, how can you talk about your abortion experience and not have shame today? And I really think it started, and the way that, like, they start is you talk about the character of God. You will never know the fullness of God without knowing his character. And it was basically a giant Bible study. It's like, wait, I thought this was going to be, no. The next big piece is you have to kind of go through grief. You've got to go through all the stages of grief. And I could understand God's willingness to forgive me and how he could send his son and he could allow him to take my sin that even the sin of murdering my own child like he could handle that but the question that was the last piece to really be solved was could I forgive myself because I had a living breathing child in front of me that I knew how much I loved that kid And that was the piece that I think was the hardest to walk through. In those moments, did you think about the feeling that you described when you woke up from the anesthesia and you felt there has been a child ripped from my body? Yeah, for a long time I felt it every June during my due date. I mean, really. Um, It's been years, though, since I've had the inklings and thoughts oh it's June you know so I think that's just like any grief I think post-abortive women are not allowed to grieve the dignity of their children we are so focused on the sin which by the way is a secondary sin of what really started it in the first place right which sin is like that right you know um most most of the time, there's there's something else going on, and it's really a secondary kind of, it's sin on sin. And um, the woman, just like, so here's the thing, Stephanie. The woman is the product in the abortion clinic, but the post-abortive woman feels like the product in the church because it's easy to look at the sin, but then not look at her and say, God's forgiven you, so now you need to walk through wholeness, and you need to forgive me, and let's walk through it together, because nobody still wants to talk about it because of that shame, and so when people ask me, how are you able to talk about it, I love this analogy. It's like a giant scar, and if you've ever had a really good cut, and you got a good scar on you, um, you know that the thickness around that scar It's like the skin is thicker because it's your body's way of saying, okay, we're not going to be wounded there again. I wear a scar on my heart with the name Christian because that's my baby's name. And I can push it. I can touch it. I can remember. I can talk about it. And that's how I know that God has forgiven me and that I have forgiven me because I have the freedom that I can walk in that. But I think many women will get to the point where they'll accept the forgiveness of Christ and they will walk around wearing a crown of shame 
because they never forgive themselves. And then they never get the opportunity to share their story because it's really his story. And I think that's where we, in the church, we miss it sometimes. We don't, we don't give women the opportunity to be like, you know, this is, this is my woman at the well moment, right? Do you think that we as the church have some of those, let's just call them big sins, Mm-hmm. that we talk we speak against so much that when it comes to helping someone heal from it, we don't even know what to say because we've said so much against it. Yeah. I mean, think about, I mean, I know this sounds extreme. Like, please understand that I understand that this sounds extreme. But think about how we would view somebody who was a pedophile and came to Christ. I think that's how most post-abortive women feel like it's the unforgivable sin yeah because a mother is not supposed to kill her child like it's unnatural right yeah and there's such a big portion of the church that advocates against this so for you you mentioned the uh, abortion recovery Mm -hmm. group that met at the church you were in which I see that as God knew exactly what church you were supposed to be in because he knew that you needed that. Maybe the church that people attend don't have that program that they're offering. Mm -hmm. How do they make women comfortable enough to share the story God has given them? You know, I, I think that it's really, some of it's an education piece for pastors and for lay pastors and for leaders. To understand that it is the enemy's design to keep something between you and God. It always has been. It's an old scheme. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, the guilt and the shame that we carry post-abortion is something that will keep us ultimately from the freedom found in him. So it's just an education and understanding. When you're looking around your congregation, statistically, 25% of the women in childbearing years, have had an abortion. I mean, think about... That was one in four. One in four. So look down the aisle. Look at the pew next to you. Look at the chair next to you. Look at your aisle. One in four. I mean, that is staggering. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations or I've seen people and we talk about it in church and women just have tears pour down their eyes. So have your eyes open. Be sensitive. Um, There's a great Bible study uh, out and um, it's called Forgiven and Set Free. It was written by an RN. And, um, you know, it's a great, it offers a great path towards really finding healing. And so I think that's something that, that we can do. And as we talk about the sin of abortion, because we should, because we should be talking about it, we should also talk about that there is hope and there is recovery Um from it if you have experienced it. And I think they need to go hand in hand because statistically it's a problem. There's many women that are just sitting there desperate for wholeness. And many of them have been in a situation where you were, where you didn't have a relationship with Christ, but you had the weight of shame you were carrying and you had no outlet for it. They may not have a stable person like you had to cling on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think so many, I, 
mean, I have worked with so many post-abortive women through the years, and the stories that are the hardest for me are the women who um, will say, I've aborted the only child I ever bore. I mean, that's, that is a devastating statement to hear. And helping women understand that motherhood can look different for different people, whether you go on and have infertility, because a lot of women struggle with infertility after their abortion. Um, And so really having and seeking out how do I take this given role, right, given role by our creator to bring life forward. How can I do that in other ways? And I will tell you, it always works. Find a way that you can serve others because it will be a game changer for you. And probably the place you don't want to be is the nursery. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But that I'm would just... be exceptionally hard. And I think some women probably feel like they need to put themselves there because they feel like they need to come up with their own punishment for yeah. what they've done. What they've done. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. Like, we're like that as women. Yeah, and we're not relegated to, you know, children's ministry. There's a lot of things that we can do to give back. And I think that that's really some of where we can find, I think, the power of stability comes not just in the people around you, but really in the cross. And what does he say about who I am, right? And what does... What principles does he recommend that we follow? Well, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And I really do feel like if you can find a way to bring life forward in some way, it will provide you stability because it leads you to the cross. If you, looking back at your story, and maybe you've done this and you know exactly where to go with this, um, had one word that was kind of the theme of what you've experienced or that always comes to mind when you think of your story or you tell your story, what would it be? Freedom. Uh, Scripture says that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we focus on that. But the one right before the scripture right before that is if you are my disciple and you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So my freedom comes truly at the feet of Jesus. It's when I know him and I know his word and I serve his people and I lay my life down as just like the example that he did. That's where the story starts and ends every time. I feel like you have a perspective on this because you have walked it that I will never have. So thank you for being willing to share the story that God has given you. And I would like to ask one more thing of you before we close. Um, I'll wrap up at the the very end with some different resources for you if you're uh, as you're listening to this. Maybe you feel the need to have someone pray with you. I'll share our prayer line number with you. But I would like you to pray for the women and the men mm-hmm. that are listening to this right now. Maybe there is a man that pushed for that decision of abortion and is also dealing with the shame that you've ascribed. And he 
has asked God for forgiveness and feels that, but also needs to forgive himself. Would you pray over our listeners? Lord God, I just come to you humbly and just ask that you would use this media to go forward for your power and your spirit because we know that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And what the enemy would love more than anything is to keep us weighed down in shame and weighed down in unforgiveness. So God, I pray that your words would break through. God, that your spirit would break through in this moment. No matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman, if this has affected you, you're a parent or a grandparent who pushed. If this has affected you, I pray that you would just allow the blood of Jesus to come in right now and to forgive you and to wash over your soul. Your spirit is free and cleansed. And then I invite you to take the next step to just let go of the guilt and the shame and forgive yourself. You did the best you could with the available information you had. And the story that you will write going forward in freedom will have such an impact. And so I embolden you to just seek out wholeness and healing in his word and through prayer and through worship because he will meet you there. And God, we invite you in that moment to meet them there with your power and your love and God, a strong and sound mind in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Story Matters. Check out the show notes below. We have some different links and some resources available to you related to the topic we covered in this episode. And then be sure to follow and download for more of This Story Matters. If you need prayer, we invite you to call or text our prayer line. It's available 24-7, 365, anytime you could possibly need it, 877-800-7729. We would love to hear the story God has written in your life. Email us with your story at thisstorymatters at thewind.radio.